John chapter 17, we're going to be in verses 20 through 26. When you get to John chapter 17, why don't you look up at me and say, it's all about Jesus. All right, all right. If you are able this morning, would you please stand for the reading of this good news? John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Hey, we're in our series entitled uh, Axiom, so I'm not going to review our whole series, but I would encourage you to go to westsidepb.org and you can catch up on the series. And so an axiom is a truth or a principle um, that has a profound concept to it. And it's one that sort of gives us handles in life. And what we're wanting to do is we are wanting to view the world and interact with the world and others the way that Jesus did. And the way that we do that is we look in the Gospels and we see what Jesus believed about the world and then also behaved with people around. And um, last week we learned the concept that what God does through you, he also does in you. Or to put that in a negative sense, God will never do something through you that he has not done first in you. And so to make it very simple, when it comes to leading a ministry or helping someone out or doing something like that, God is never going to put a call in your life to um, lead a community group and to lead married couples if you yourself are not doing the internal work and working on your own marriage. That's the concept of that. And we see that Jesus understood that his obedience and fulfilling the Father's will was something that was done in him that then came out of him. And so these concepts are building one upon the other. And and today, um, I'm I'm very unapologetic about this, but today we're going to be in the theological deep end of the pool. Okay, I'm going to need you guys to press in a little bit. I'm going to need you to pay attention uh, because today we're learning about a very profound theological concept. And listen, we're very unashamed about teaching hard things here at Westside that come from the scriptures. Um, We learn a lot of hard things in our lives. When I talk to guys all the time, they know a lot about sports and they can tell you about the Cardinals pitcher in 1976 and man in the seventh inning whenever it was only two outs and this, that, and the other, but they can't name all the books of the Bible, okay? So we choose what we want to invest in and learn in. And today I'm just going to ask you to sort of press in a little bit. And maybe this will help us where we're going. Um, As being a pastor, I get to be there for a lot of uh, profound moments in people's lives. 
um, when, when babies are born, you get to be there, you get to pray, not like there when it's happening, but you come later and uh, all that stuff. Um, you're also there in heartbreaking moments uh, whenever you preach a funeral. But I love uh, doing weddings as well, and I actually did one yesterday. And I do premarital counseling before the wedding just to sort of talk about what is the goal. And, and this is the question that I always ask uh, couples. Um, what is the goal of your marriage? What is, what is the destination? What is the goal of your marriage? And then I just sort of s- step back and kind of watch them squirm a little bit, right? There's a lot of answers, um, you know, love. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Yeah, love. Um, and, and then if they grew up in church, you know, it's uh, to, to love my wife as, as Christ loved the church. Yep. Okay, yes, that's, all of those are a part of something. But what is the goal? What is the blueprint? What has what God laid out to say, this is the final destination? And um, God actually gives us that. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, he says these words. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now here it is. And they shall become one flesh, that two should become one. The goal of, of marriage is, is oneness. It is a diversity becoming a unity. It is financial, it is emotional, it is sexual, it is all of that. It is oneness is what the goal of that marriage is. Why? Why is that the goal? When you see they, which is a plural, should become one, which is the singular, why is that the goal? Well, that's the goal because we are created in the image and likeness of God. Um, Actually, you can pick up on this language in the first chapter of Genesis. Listen to these words. Then God said, let us make man in our image after Our likeness. Do you note the plurality of language there? Um, What we understand this to be in the Christian faith is a profound mystery. But this is what we called a close-handed issue. There are close-handed issues and there are open-handed issues. Um, Open-handed issues um, would, or a close-handed issue would be um, the return of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is coming back. Oh, that was a good spot for an amen. We believe that Jesus is coming back. That is, that is a non-negotiable. But, but do you know what's an open-handed? Um, there are a lot of views of that, of rapture, no rapture, tribulation, all of those type of things. A closed-handed issue, a doctrine of the faith that we have, um, is known as the Godhead, the Trinity, if you will. That when it comes to Christianity, um, it's one what... And three, who? One, God. Three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That our God is a diversity that is a unity. And this is what um, the Christian faith has historically viewed this as. And do you know what's great about being a part of a Christian heritage and a faith? Is that we don't have to sort of um, make up these doctrines, if you will. Actually, this doctrine was settled for us um, in August 25th, 325, 
um, AD at the Council of Nicaea. Now, I'm going I'm to be your nerd friend for a minute, okay? Can we nerd out for a second? All right. There was confusion in the church about the nature of Jesus. Is he fully God? Is he fully man? And what does that mean that he was incarnate and about the Trinity and about this, that, and the other? And so listen, just few um, decades after the teachings of the apostles, the early church settled on what is known as the Nicene Creed that was there at the council. And this Nicene Creed is what sets the blueprint for us to understand this mystery. And so um, I, I, you're going to be in the sermon now, okay? Are we ready for this? I want you guys to read this out loud with me. It is going to be on the screen, and this is good stuff. And listen, I want you, as we read this, we are reading this with a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, okay? So when we read this, I want you to read this with some oomph, okay? Some oomph, that's a theological word too, all right? Are we ready? Here we go. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets and we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen and yes and amen, right? That is good stuff. And that is what we understand our God to be, is this diversity that is a unity. And so when we were created in the image and likeness of God, it was to reflect that diversity in a unity. Now, what does that have to do with where we're going at with the axioms? Well, in our passage today, in John chapter 17, you might have noticed a word that popped up a lot. Um, verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. And then drop down to verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 23. I in them and, and you in me that they may be perfectly one. Um, so it's repeated multiple times. And actually, um, in this prayer, 
which is um, the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus, he uses the word one six times. Jesus is praying for his church and for the disciples who are a diversity to be a unity together, that he would be unified with them and that they would be unified with one another. And as a matter of fact, look at the parallel of Genesis 2.24 and John 17.21. Genesis 2.24, and they, the, the plurality, shall become one. And then John 17.21, and that they may all be one. Listen, the goal of marriage is the same goal when it comes to discipleship and the church of Jesus Christ. And axiom number six that we're learning today is this. That the goal of discipleship is divine union. Okay, now that's some big language and it's kind of like, what? What are we talking about? Well, it's the oneness. That's the goal of being a follower of Jesus Christ is that each and every day, as you progress in your relationship with Jesus, that you would become more and more and more unified with Jesus, but not just with Jesus, there's a byproduct of that. That as we become more unified in our relationship with Jesus, we also are becoming more unified with one another as well. Now, a lot of times if you ask somebody what the goal of discipleship is, you'll get a lot of answers just like what's the goal of your marriage. It depends on what sort of um, heritage you grew up in. You know, if you grew up um, more of an intellectual, you're going to say, well, you know, the goal of uh, discipleship is knowledge, right? My people perish because of a lack of knowledge of me, says God in the Old Testament. And so it's about classes, and it's about doing this, and it's about knowledge and knowledge and knowledge and knowledge and knowledge. Or um, there's a ditch as well on the other side of the road. And people would say, no, 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 no. Um, the goal of discipleship is good works. I mean, because you got to love and you got to do all that and you got to preach the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words, okay, right? And that's not even what he said, okay? There's a ditch on either side of the road when it comes to that. And there's a, a, a few errors when we think about this idea of unity and oneness. Um, the first one is this. Oneness doesn't mean sameness, okay? So oneness doesn't mean sameness. It doesn't mean that we are all going to vote the same way, that we're all going to have, I mean, it, you go down the checklist and it's yes and it's yes and it's yes and it's yes and it's yes. No, no, no. The glory is actually in being different but being unified, so this oneness that we're talking about does not mean sameness, that we're all going to look the same, dress the same, and believe every single thing the same. The second thing is this. Um, the unity doesn't mean uniformity, all right? And, and here's what I mean by that. It doesn't mean um, uniformity is a cult, all right, where we all wear Nike tennis shoes and drink Kool-Aid and take a nap together, all right? That's not um, what the church is when it comes to that. This unity, again, is seen in the diversity. And, and, and listen, I'm going to try to, and apparently I say this all the time according to the video, put the jelly on the bottom shelf for us, all right? Um, I think when we think about when it comes to church and about being a diversity and being a unity, um, 
we sort of think of it like a bag of marbles, all right? So one bag of marbles, and we're all, this is church, and here we are, and this is West Side, and we all have our each um, individual lives here. Um, but this is actually still division, because no matter how much I press and try to make this bag of marbles one, they are still very separate. And can I just be honest with you? Um, my greatest fear for us at Westside is that this would be us. That we would say that we're one and we come to church together and we go to community group every once in a while. But our relationships and our lives, no matter how much we try to press it together and make it one, um, they're still separate. They're still um, individual in that sense. You see, Jesus, last week we learned, said that it's not like a bag of marbles, but it's like um, a bushel of grapes. You see, because there's each individual grape that's growing, that needs to be pruned and taken care of, but they are unified and together because they are attached to the vine. Listen, this is the organic view and life of the church. This is what it looks like to be unified with God and with one another. And so the key to this is that this oneness is a diversity that is a unity, okay? That's what this divine union is. So I'm going to need you to press in with me. You should have a couple questions as to what does that look like? What does this mean? What is divine union? Does it start first with each other and then with God? And then Jesus was saying that, God, you're in me and, and I'm in you and then we are all together. No, that's a Beatles song, okay? Um, but it's like, what does this mean, okay? So listen, I'm going to walk through three things. Um, that this union is supernatural, that this union is vertical, and then this union is horizontal, okay? So the first thing is this. This divine union, first off, is supernatural, okay? You say, Jason, where do you get that from? Well, I don't want to move around the context. This context is Jesus' prayer. It's the high priestly prayer. And he prays for three things. In the first verses, he prays for himself, actually. Because he is moments away from getting arrested, and then the crucifixion takes place, and all of that. He prays for himself. Then he prays for the disciples that are present and there with him. And then listen to this. Oh, please don't miss this. The third thing that Jesus prays for is you. Right now. In 2020. Look at what he says in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus prayed for you right now. How crazy is that to understand? A.W. Tozer said that every one of our fears would vanish if we could understand and hear for just a moment Jesus praying for us in the other room. That Jesus prayed for us and he prayed and asked God, the Father, that we would become one. Which tells me this. If Jesus asked the Father to make us one, that tells me that our natural tendency and propensity is to not be one, right? 
is to not be one. Um, and if you want any evidence of this, first off, in the world, look around at the state of things. Um, my father grew up as a baby boomer. He grew up during civil rights. He grew up during the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, like many of you. And he said the other day, Jason, even in that time and era in life, I don't think that it was as divided as it even is now. That there is something different about this level of division that is everywhere in the world. That you're either this or that, and if you're not this or that, then you're canceled because of this and because of that. And it's not just that in the world. We should expect that from the world. Do you know what the saddest thing is? Is that that division is seen in the church. If you don't believe it, just open up your um, Popper Bluff newspaper and look at the amount of churches that are in the city limits. I mean, there's... First, second, third, fourth, fifth Baptist. There's, I mean, you know what I'm saying? There's all types. It's constantly everywhere. And then if you're not about this author, and if you're not about this now, do we defend doctrine? And yet, yes and amen. But what this comes down to, um, well, here's the sentence. The natural, it is more natural for human beings to be divided than united because sin separates so we see this in the beginning in the book of Genesis that God created Adam and Eve and that there was beautiful oneness there, Genesis 2.24. And then Genesis 3 happens and we notice that they run and hide and then the marriage already starts breaking down right there in those chapters. And one of the byproducts, listen, this is going to be provocative and very offensive, but welcome to Westside. We're glad you're here, okay? Um, one of the byproducts of sin is this idea and this concept that I am my own individual, meaning this, that nobody understands me, that I am my own captain, this, that. It's almost, listen, this is going to, I mean, it's this idea that we think that we're so special and exempt from everything. And, and, and the great God right now in the United States of America is to be your own individual and not to be under any authority and to buck all authority and to not be this and to not be that, but to blaze your own trail and to do all of that. And when we look at the scriptures, we, some, we see something that is completely different than that. I love the way that author Timothy Keller put it this way. Listen, this quote is stout, okay? So just get ready. God is the only unique individual. Since every one of us, the Bible says, by nature, seeks to be our own God, all of us feel that we're unique. I'll put it this way. One of the first results of sin is that you think you're more unique than you really are. You feel like, I'm special. Nobody knows the trouble I've been through. Nobody knows what I go through. Yes, it looks like I've done this and this, but you see, I'm so much more different than they are because I'm special. I have unique feelings and I have unique needs. You don't understand because nobody understands me because I'm God. I'm unique. You see, the first response to sin is to think nobody understands you because you're so special. 
Somebody said that sin creates a relentless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. And it needs that in turn. And that in turn completely isolates you from other people. Listen, that's tough to hear. That's tough to hear. But at the end of the day, that's true. That is the great problem. If that is not healed in the human heart, then it doesn't matter what governments, what systems, or whatever gets put in place. We have to get off the throne in our own heart and seat Jesus there. And one of the great ways to see this and to test this, because some of you, if, if, you're, you know, if the Bible is true, some of you are even arguing with me right now. You're like, well, I mean, that quote doesn't really apply to me. <laughs> like, it applies, you know, to them. Um, the great way to, to test that is how do you handle correction? When there's a moment, either when there's an error or a breach in the relationship, and somebody sits down and asks of you to come together, how do you handle that? Is it a justification? Is it defensiveness? What is that? You see, listen, this unity that we're talking about, Westside, it is supernatural. And please, let us never, ever, ever forget that. Ever forget that. That it is supernatural what God is doing in our midst. Do you know that there are people here who vote um, Republican? And did you know that there are people here who vote Democrat? And did you know that there are people here who are socioeconomically well off? And that there are people who are below the poverty line? Did you know that there are white? Did you know that there are black? Did you know that there are all different types of people? But at the end of the day, the goal of Westside is divine union with our God and with each other. And that is what we will strive for. And I will always, as long as I'm the pastor here, be unapologetic about that. And there are times when the tension becomes too great. But I beg of you, don't bail. It will be the hardest thing in your life to stick with one church and to love one group of people. And when it becomes tough, don't bail. Have you ever thought about reading the New Testament? I mean, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. Or the book of Philippians. Have you read the last chapter in Philippians where the Apostle Paul calls out like three or four old ladies who are gossiping in the church? I mean, he calls them by name. So right now, to be real biblical, what we're going to do... No, no, I'm just kidding, okay? <laughs> right? Why? Why is it he's writing to Christians in the church? Listen, this thing's going to be hard. It will be the hardest thing that you've ever done, just like marriage is. But just like that, it will be the most rewarding thing that you've ever done in your life. That the goal of this is divine union. It's union. And that union is supernatural. It's not something that we can do on our own. So what does it look like and what is the order in which it comes? Well, the first thing is this. This divine union, it's first vertical, okay? It deals with our relationship with God first. Jesus says this, that they may be one just as, Father, you are in me and I in you. I mean, oh my goodness. This is, this is so profound what Jesus is teaching. You see, we love to go right to the one another aspect 
which is huge here for us, gospel community mission. We believe living life together in those one another's, yes. But, but listen, before there's a one another, before there's a one another, there's a just as. There's a just as, because look at what Jesus says there in verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father. That just as is kathos. It's a conjunction that says the byproduct of Christians being one is first and foremost a byproduct of the oneness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So what is union with God? Jason, what are you even saying? Well, here's the sentence. We have fellowship with the Father through the Son by the Holy Spirit. That is how we have a relationship with God. We have fellowship with the God who created the universe. And we have that fellowship through the Son. This is a non-negotiable. Listen to me. There is one way to God. And that is through Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, verse six, uh, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. Listen, there are not many ways to God. There is one way to God, and that is highly offensive in our culture. But I say we're focusing on the wrong thing. We shouldn't be offended that there's only one way to God. We should be amazed that there's a way to God. That God in his goodness and kindness has made a way through Jesus Christ. And so as uh, Paul would tell Timothy that there's one mediator between God and man. And that is the God-man Jesus Christ. Listen, that's what makes us Protestant who we are. You don't have to come to me and I tell you to say five prayers, stand on one leg and turn around in circles and do this. And then you can have access to God. Listen, man, we believe the Protestant Reformation. We believe in the priesthood of all believers. That you have direct access to God through the Father, through, or through the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is our identity. This has a profound impact on everything. Did you know that that's why we say our prayers um, in Jesus' name? Your prayer um, is, is like a check, if you will. And in order to cast that check, we, we pray that in Jesus' name. If you ask in my name. That's the only way that we have access to God. But trying to think about um, God and Jesus, you know, God the Father and the Son being one and then us being one, I was like, how in the world, God, please, what's this like? What is this like? What is this like? And, and any illustration in anything is going to fall short here, okay? Because this is a profound mystery. But I believe that I had a Holy Spirit moment, all right? And God brought to my mind, do you remember those really weird um, they're called Russian stacking dolls, okay? All right, so please um, follow me here, okay, right? Um, this is you, all right? Here you are. There's you, and then let's do this. This is Jesus, okay? We said last week that the New Testament says over 130 times the way that the New Testament describes a Christian positionally, as who their identity is spiritually, is in Christ. In Christ. 
That's how the Apostle Paul is able to write to the church in Corinth, which is like Christians gone wild, to the saints, hagios, to the saints in Corinth. How? How can we be called saints? Because we are sinners and we are far from God. Well, the concept is, is that we are in Christ. And so now, when God the Father looks at you, for those of us who have confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in our heart that God has raised him from the dead and walked through the acts of obedience, through baptism, and partake in the glory that he has given us, God doesn't see our sin. God doesn't see our past, for we are a new creation. But it doesn't just stop there, right? We don't just have access with being in Jesus. We have complete divine union with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So, listen, you're saying, Jason, what does that mean? That means that we get what Jesus has. Here's what we always preach, and this is true, but it's half a gospel. Half a gospel is, is that when you're in Christ, you're forgiven. Oh, praise be to God for that. Anybody glad that they're forgiven of stuff? Please don't leave this preacher up here alone, because listen, I've done some stuff, okay? Right? And, and maybe you're out there, and again, you're still one of those people who are like, well, I'm unique, I'm a snowflake. Okay, great. Um, how about, what if we just hooked your mind and heart up to the projector today? And just, just thumb through some thoughts, some feelings, right? You see, it's that standard that we know that we've all fallen short of. So yes, we are forgiven completely and fully in Jesus Christ, but that's only half the gospel. We are not just forgiven, we are rewarded in Jesus Christ, that we are not just forgiven, we are rewarded. That the rightness, the righteousness, the right standing that Jesus has with the Father, we now have. So to understand it this way, um, I mean, try to think of the worst person ever in the world. If there was somebody who murdered a child every day for their entire life, And they found the grace and the mercy that is offered in the gospel. Listen to me. This should be offensive. That person is not just forgiven. Oh, there are still earthly consequences, and you should, not, um, you should fear the sword if you live by that. Yes, there are consequences. That person is not just forgiven, but in Christ. But in Christ is rewarded. Do you understand how offensive this grace is now? Do you understand that now when people go, no, 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 that can't be the gospel. That can't be true. Because we share in the union with Christ. What does that mean? That means we share in his life in the right standing with the Father. We share in his death that we've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. We share in his resurrection that we are resurrected with Christ. We share in his ascension that we've been raised with him and we 
we share in his heavenly session that we are sitting positionally with Christ at the right hand of the Father and we will share in his glorious return. Westside, listen, this is the good news of the gospel is that in the person of Jesus Christ, you have divine union with the creator of the universe and you are not just forgiven. It's not like God just saved you and then kind of has to put up with you. God delights in you. You are not just forgiven. You are rewarded in Christ. This is the goal. And you say, Jason, what in the world does this have to do with anything? It has everything to do with everything. And we see this most gloriously um, when we baptize someone. For they stand there in that water, condemned as a symbol, standing there as the death and then we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the divine union. For you have been buried with Christ. And when they come up out of that water, they hear the word. And in his likeness and in his resurrection. That that's that full baptism there. So it's not just that, but it's also this. You see, every one of us have relationship problems in here. Every one of us. And if you're like, uh, I don't think so. I think things are going well. You're actually the problem that everybody has. You're the one in that, okay? And they actually have a term for people who are struggling in their marriage. We say here all the time. It's called being married. It's married. That's the term, right? And what we think is, I got to get these relationships. I got to get, I got to understand that. No, 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 no. We don't focus on the horizontal first. You see, first and foremost, it's the vertical. And this is what I'm trying to say. You will never, you will never be able to love completely until you understand that you are completely loved. You can't start with the other relationships first. That's why anytime we sit down with a cup of coffee, somebody's life's falling apart, whether it's addictions or whatever, they want to get that thing right. They want to get those relationships right. And that's why the conversation always has to start with, hey, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? You will never be able to love completely until you understand that you were completely loved. This union is supernatural, and it's first and foremost vertical. Then, just as, it becomes horizontal. It now goes out to others. I mean, Jesus prays this, and he says this phrase, that they may become perfectly one. Like, really? Like, I looked it up in the original just to see, like, maybe he didn't mean perfectly one. Maybe he just meant kind of one, right? No, it's perfectly one. You know why? Because he says it twice, that there's a byproduct of that. Do you know um, what will change Popper Bluff? Do you know what will change Popper Bluff? Um, not a program? No. It's not, you know, West Side to have the best Sunday service or to have the best singing or the best preaching or more classes or to feed these people or to do that. No. That's not what's going to change Popper Bluff. According to the text... What Jesus says will change Popper Bluff and in turn the world is when the world sees a diversity of people who are united as one. 
so that they may believe that you have sent me. When the world looks at a church of people that are so different and that believe different things and have sinned against each other and hurt each other but are in this for the long haul and are forgiving one another and loving one another. Jesus says there in that moment, that is what will make the world believe is that type of love for one another, which tells me this. Division inside the church breeds atheism outside the church. Listen to me. Division inside the church. And for far too long, the church has been so caught up. And, and do you know why churches begin to argue over like carpet and like, well, that painting was given by so and so and this, that and the other. Do you know why they start arguing about that stuff? Is because they've lost the mission. They've lost the mission. So now we don't have a purpose. So what our purpose is, is to sit, sit around and just knick-knack and just sort of do this and say this and get angry about this. And they didn't text me or call this. That's somebody who's not on mission. And do you know what division comes from? Division. Division means two visions. Two visions. That's why this unity in marriage, um, you should probably understand what the goal and vision for your marriage is. Because if you have two visions, you have die vision. And anything, do you know what the greatest threat? I'm so tired of the fear mongering and, oh, you're going to lose this and you're going to lose that. Listen, Jesus promised that he will build his church. Amen? And that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is not from the outside of it. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is division inside of it. And do you know where that comes from? That comes from pride. That comes from selfishness. That comes from I'm my own individual. But we see this, that when the church as a family is unified, then God our Father is glorified. That's the key to this. So the goal of your everyday walk with Jesus is to become one is to become one. So now, my biblical worldview, when somebody says, well, hey, what do you think about this? Or, hey, what should we do with our money? You go to the pages of Scripture, the mind of Christ, to set your mind upon the heavenly things, the things that are above. And so now it's this continual oneness, and I can test that oneness with Christ by seeing my oneness with one another. And now think about it. Where do we see this vertical and this horizontal image of love? Well, look at the giant cross standing behind me. My dear friends, it is no mistake that the cross has two beams. The first one being vertical. Not symbolizing your love to God. Symbolizing God's love coming down in Christ towards you. That's the first beam. And man, church has spent so long about the doctrines of the faith and pursuing that. And that is right because we can never love completely until we understand that we are completely loved. But boy, that horizontal beam, that love outward to other people, that's where the rubber meets the road. 
So Westside, for us as a church, that's why we do the things we do. The Fall Fest, sure, that's a great time, but that's a moment for us to live life together. Why do we have community groups? Because life can't happen in rows on Sunday. It's for you to get in someone's home, to share life together, and then from that environment, the relationships build up together again, and then the next thing you know, you're there in the hospital room and the baby's born, and then you're at birthday parties, and you're living life together, and you have a whole litany and a list of people that you can call when the bottom drops out of your life because what you're understanding is that you are no longer your old self but you are now in Christ and you're not only in Christ but you're loving one another. That's the goal. That's the goal of this church. So two closing questions. The first one is this. Do you, do you know God's love for you? I mean, really, man. Do you know God's love for you? Do you know what moves me now? I had a radical conversion. God saved me from, you know, the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all that stuff. I'm so grateful for that, that he would, in my sin, choose me and pick me in the midst of sinning. But do you know what I'm in awe of now? I'm in such awe that he chose me and knew that even after he chose me, that I would still sin. That I would still sin. And that prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave my God I love. Lord, take my heart and seal it for thy courts above. That we are prone to wonder, but he is such a good father. That when we wonder, it's not just this idea that he saved us while we were wondering. It's that he saved us and that we would still wonder the beauty of that grace. And then the second question is this. Are you expressing that love to others? And it doesn't have to be some programmed out profound thing. It very simply is opening up your life to other people and experiencing that love for one another. The goal of this thing is oneness. It's oneness with God, and it's oneness with each other. And Westside, we will never be, we will never be a bag of marbles, though some of us have lost our marbles. We will never be a bag of marbles. We will be the branches connected to the vine. And listen, it's gonna be so hard. We're gonna hurt each other, to sin against each other. And you know what else we're going to do? We're going to love each other. We're going to forgive each other. We're going to pray for each other. We're not going to bail. We're not going to bail on this thing. So Westside, stand to your feet and let us pray how Jesus taught us to pray when he said, our Father, to express that level of unity. Westside, lift your voice and let us pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Father, we come before you as your children. God, we confess 
we don't understand the magnitude of the grace and the mercy. Some of us are even caught up in the sentence of, it's not just that we're forgiven, it's that we're rewarded. Our mind can't fathom that. There's something that rises up in us that goes, no, that's not fair, that's not right. And there we go, the way of the elder brother, demanding our own individualistic status. When in reality, we're all prodigals. You've given us that grace and mercy that's so radical. God, I pray that the light bulb would come on today and that we would just get a glimpse, just a glimpse of the love and mercy and grace that you have for us. Just as Moses said, let me see your glory. And you said, no man can look upon my glory and live, but you can, you can see a glimpse of it. And Moses' life was changed forever. But now, God, we see your full glory in the person of Jesus Christ. May we see that glimpse and may it change us. And maybe for some of us in this room today who, when it comes to that horizontal beam, we have relationships that aren't right in this very room here today. And Jesus, you tell us that if you go to the house of worship and you find that your brother has ought against you or that you have ought against your brother, that you should stop everything that you are doing, and that you should go and that you should make it right with your brother or sister. God, would your Holy Spirit just move in such a way today that maybe somebody who has ought against somebody would just grab a hand and pray? Oh God, what if revival looks like that? What if your children being unified just looks like that? And God, we pray that when we are unified like that, that you would get all the glory. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.